every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. My good friend, brother, Brian McKenzie. Thank you very much for being on the Endurance Cartel podcast, my man. And brother, yeah, if I didn't press press play, man, I think that this would have been unrecorded and would have, because I would just wanted to catch up with you. I feel like I was fortunate and privileged to work alongside you with for just a short period of time. And um, unfortunately for me, I was going through dark moments on, on my life uh, during those times. But I managed to see, uh, take like a first first class ticket there to see how you have evolved, man. And uh, just wanted to catch up with you and seeing how where I left you. I left you at CrossFit Endurance and the attendance was above what the level one was at CrossFit. That's how badass CrossFit Endurance was, man. Well, at one point, well, the, I, the, the privilege, it, it was mine to be working with a lot of coaches and people like you, uh, but in particular you, I always grateful for that. I'm still shocked. Whatever I created, like took off <laughs> and, and the capacity did, you know, and I mean, it was only a short time frame. That literally the, that we were doing larger seminars than, uh, than level one, but nonetheless, there was a, uh, there was a time that it was, it was cranking pretty hard. I mean, people love endurance, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite fascinating. I remember uh, Guido, the Trinidad. Yeah. So he was like, dude, you got to get into CrossFit Endurance. And by then I just uh, stepped out of a gym I was working at. And you got to meet this guy, Brian McKenzie. And uh, so I took the seminar and then I fell in love with the seminar. And we were only like seven cats in 2010. And then in 2013, there were, we remember we had a waiting list uh, of people wanting to get in. What resonated me to be working with CrossFit Endurance to spread your message because it's like you got it you know, it's in the sense of, okay, this guy knows what the heck he's talking about. He interprets information in a way that it's fascinating to me and it fascinated to everybody, obviously, because they attended more of our seminars than they did the level one. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that. There's definitely people who would disagree with, with, with things that I've come to understand. I just, I, you know, I, I think I just took a different approach to looking at things. And I was fortunate in who I surrounded myself with and being curious about things working one way um, has always been something I've challenged. So I, I've done things many different ways. And there's many different ways to still do a lot of different training things. Nonetheless, I, I appreciate that. That's curiosity. I guess it makes you almost like a scientist in a way. Hypothesis on something and then going out and experimenting with it. And it just happens that that caught fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and ironically, now I find myself involved in science. Not to mention this, just like looking back since the moment that you, you agreed to, to do this podcast. I was just looking back and in, in, um, how you evolved and just going through all your books. The first one, the it was it Power Speed Endurance. Then uh, the second one was um, Unbreakable Runner. And then the other one was Unplugged. And Bar None Unplugged for me has been one of those books that I still read every once in a while just because it's so wise. And not to mention that you've affiliated yourself with minds like Huberman and uh, Dr. Andy Galplin. I mean, it's these guys, I follow them on, on the IG. I, I listen to their podcast and it's just mind blowing the, the people that you've been surrounded with that you've evolved in knowledge in, uh, in science and, and breath work, man. I mean, it's like, look how shift is, man. It's, but I'm hoping you can tell me more about what shift is all about and how it's helping endurance athletes now that you were once correcting and preaching technique, which you still do, but now you added the breath work to it. I'm, I'm a Czech certified uh, a practitioner and it's just, that's in the totem pole. That's the first thing it goes, Bre uh, no, first psyche. And then it's uh respiration and then it's everything else. And you start, I mean, it's, you're, you're right there, man. So it, I want to learn what you, you can give me on what gears are, how endurance athletes can benefit 
from the gears that you teach in, in your shift uh, paradigm? So, yeah, I think the easiest drop off point would be everything I had taught in the past kind of got flipped on its head when somebody handed me a training mask. And I kind of laughed at it because it said elevation training mask. I've had altitude simulators or low oxygen concentrators for, I don't know, 10 years at that time. And I still have altitude. Like I still work in hypoxia uh, and altitude. I just don't talk about it a whole lot. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was um, I handed one of these things and I laughed because I was like, it doesn't, there's nothing it's doing for elevation. It's not changing the pressure, meaning the atmospheric pressure. So altitude affects us because of pressure changes, not because of percentage of oxygen. And you can't just put a mask on and change the pressure of things. So I knew that that wasn't changing anything for altitude, but I also knew I had never put the mask on. Mm. So I put it on and strapped it on and I was sitting down and I took a breath. And when I took a breath, I went... And I sat up and organized myself and that changed everything. And I was just like, uh Oh, why hasn't anybody been talking about this? <laughs> you know, like nobody's talking about the organization of breathing around the rib cage and the diaphragm being the epicenter of human movement. And, you know, although my work with like Dr. Nicholas Romanoff was around the general center of mass and understanding that the fact is, is all movement organizes itself around the diaphragm that weaves itself around in a it circumnavigates around the rib cage, but that involves the spine and the rear side of that spine or the anterior portion of the lumbar spine, um, basically like L1 and then T12. But um, nonetheless, it, it integrates in there. And so all organization has to change as a result of that. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be using your primary breathing muscles, which is what you should be doing most of the time, then you need to be organized correctly. And I just, and based on everything I was teaching, that kind of flipped everything on its head. And then I start, so, I, so we started using these masks to kind of get people organized a little bit better in their warmups and through some core, quote unquote, core work by teaching people how to breathe in with their primary breathing muscles in challenging positions and then warming them up by using more of their primary breathing muscles versus getting into their secondary or their, their compensatory breathing muscles. Um, anyway, that then transcended into respiratory physiology and then studying respiratory physiology and getting an understanding of that along with stress physiology and understanding that and then getting into the neurobiological side of things because breathing is tied up in the nervous system. Um, so it's it, it, breathing is basically, there's a reason why it's the foundation of everything in most all practices, regardless of what they are. If they're deep enough, Breathing will sit at the foundation of those things. And there's a good reason why. And the reason why is because it's intertwined between the mind and the body, which we can only separate through our language. These things are not separated otherwise, meaning my mind does something, my physiology responds. So there's a very, there's a, there's a famous um, psychologist back in the thirties or forties, I believe his name's Otto Rank. And he had a uh, quote that said, psychology is incompletely understood biology and that is yeah. mm -hmm. pretty much the crux of the where the work is at with me right now is most what i'm dealing what we're really understanding is that although we live in a very modern world we still have very real biological drivers towards survival and regardless of the picture that i paint or the story that are that i tell or the perception that i have there are biological drivers that are driving that and my breathing responds to that in real time. And so breathing is a behavioral thing. From a performance level, <laughs> we just were flabbergasted with what we were seeing when we started controlling our breathing during training. Um, and we didn't just like come up with this. We decided to work scientifically with metabolic carts to understand gas exchange and what was actually happening. And there's a mountain of 
evidence now coming out that people are people are listening and I'm involved in stuff as well currently that there are very different things that are happening with somebody heading out the door on a run and just opening their mouth or they're actually controlling their breathing by either breathing through their nose or controlling the pattern of breathing to actually elicit an adaptation they're looking for. You know, we've known for quite some time in exercise science that gas exchange is how we measure metabolic output. So what you're burning for fuel. And we just, it's funny because so many people in the bioenergetic space are so anti this breathing. There's still a lot of people who are really like, oh, it doesn't work like that. You know, you don't, you shouldn't have to control. You shouldn't need to control the breathing. And it's like, that's not true. Yoga has been talking about this for 5,000 years. And, you know, there's a good reason they were. If you think yoga is what, what is happening today, you have no idea what yoga actually is. And yoga is not an easy thing that is done. It is a very, very difficult thing that triathletes and endurance athletes don't do just because they need to get flexible. (laughs) it's, It's a practice that involves you getting very intimate with your psyche because you are struggling to get into a position that you can't breathe in and you need to learn how to breathe in it. And just so happens when you can breathe in a good position, you start to own that position. And so if you're heading out the door and you are instantly opening that mouth, that is a very good indication that there is something mechanically going on that's wrong. And you have an opportunity to change that and evolve that. Um, and so there's kind of the crux of the work from the performance and also the kind of lifestyle intervention point of what we're doing at shift at this point, you know, we're still working with inside the training spectrum and performance, um, as I'm always going to be closely tied to that. I I'm driven by performance. I like to go fast. It just is what it is, but I'm also very well aware that it comes at costs if I'm not actually like in a good space to be doing that, right? Like a little bit, like we were talking about like my injury from, from, from my uh, mountain bike accident, like less than two weeks ago. And, um, you know, it, that's essentially why I train is so that like, as I get older, as I'm approaching 50, it's like, I don't bounce back like I did when I was 30. And, but I, but I still want to go fast. And so if I'm going to do that, I actually have to pay attention to those things and learn how to train appropriately. And breathing at the fundamental place of that has given me a guidance system to not only train for myself and take care of myself, but how to show others how to do that as well. I've been uh, testing people when metabolic testing and uh, somewhat VO2 max testing, but people that ask for VO2 max, mostly triathletes, unless they're pros, I'm not going to do a VO test on them. And I'll, I'll basically tell them, let's do a metabolic instead and see how it goes and, and submax VO2. Because there's no way their nervous system will go that far into the VO2. That's intelligence, right? That, that's called learning and understanding. And, and very young in my career, I, I would test everybody and anybody. VO2 <laughs> max. <laughs> and most people can't even hit that. And then they, no then they can't recover from that test. So, yeah. I mean, look, um, I was at the UFC and we were, tr- we were doing VO2 tests with, with some fighters. And they, those are arguably the fittest people in the world. And, you know, it's, it's funny because it's not like two, a couple of the fighters couldn't even do the max out because they were so fried already. No, it's, it's intense. I mean, getting your nervous system to get to that point of just total darkness you're in that pain cave and very, very few people I've met and I've tested that have hit that. And one of them, get this, one of them was businessman in a CEO in New York. And it's one of those guys that just gets drilled in. It gets to that blackout point, but very few people, but triathletes or endurance, some endurance and not only triathletes, I see their respiration rate. And, and when I explain what the respiration rate is and how fast they turn to carbohydrate burning, as opposed to just staying in that fat burning zone, they are in disbelief. They start blaming the machine or there's like, how can it be? No, no, no. And 
I tell them, look, look at all these little waves that respiration rate is giving you. This is how shallow your breathing is as opposed to having those long breaths. And uh, I'm unfortunately not an, I would, I wouldn't say expert, but I mean, somewhat more knowledgeable in how to breathe and do breath work. And so I, I would uh, refer these people to a colleague of mine and they've improved a lot, but you and, and uh, I read that gears, most people, like whenever I tell them, it's like, okay, there's, a, there's the aerobic base that you've got to start building in order for you to start bur- using fat as fuel, as opposed to just going with the carbohydrates, which are very limited mm-hmm. and they get bored. They get bored because it's, uh, it's not, it affects their ego. I feel, and, uh, and it's not entertaining. It's nothing nothing that they're used to that going slow for them. It's useless. And there's only so much. That's why people, I feel there's a lot of burnout in the, in the endurance community. They will do a few races and then they're fried. They don't want to do it anymore. They overtraining. We're, we're beginning some pilot research out, out of the UFC right now. And we tested a number of individuals with no intervention breathing. So a control group. And then an intervention group where we had them control a gear one, which is basically a nasal, an equal in and out nasal only um, breathing at, at the same exact wattage or work rate for five minutes. And the biggest change that you can see is the, <laughs> it's not just the respiration rate, it's the actual engagement of the actual ventilation mechanics. So you've got these massive, you've got people using their diaphragm and intercostals for the first time when they exercise. And and, and this is the most important part of understanding anything in exercise right now. Like this is what we're going to do. Like, so we're relaunching our art of breath course that I'm I'm teaching in August in in Los Angeles, which um, it'll sell out. But if if this goes out before anybody's, it'll be very, it would be very good for anybody in that can reach Los Angeles to get to this because we're going to go over this stuff from mechanics, physiology, and a behavioral standpoint. But the mechanics section, this is the most important aspect of exercise is that what changes is we use our primary breathing muscles longer. Secondary breathing muscles are for, for, we don't need to get into the minutia of the anatomy of it. And you touched on all this with what you just stated. Okay. Which it's not important to be an expert. It's just to understand. And you have an understanding and, and you very clearly have, have explained that already. But what, what, what our, where I'm at with the science is that what we're seeing is The secondary muscles are anything that attaches to my neck and the thorax or my limbs, legs and arms and the thorax. Okay. Mm -hmm. So think about it. The moment I I'm running out of air, I'm doing things like this, or my arms are doing weird shit and my legs are starting to do weird shit stuff. Right. And it's because they're trying to pull in order to get my ribs to, to open up more because my primary breathing muscles are probably tight and I'm unorganized. So I'm out of position. So it's very difficult. And when we give somebody that, that, that instant, like, Hey, let's just have you nasal breathe right now. They instantly, it goes from things like that to, and I'm, actively engaging my entire rib cage. And literally that is what we're seeing through ventilation, through tidal volume on these tests that we're, we're applying is that is the biggest change. Now that also affects RER. That also affects how things are happening from a metabolic standpoint slightly. And, and, it, and it's different for sure. Like you are definitely more aerobic when you engage your primary breathing muscles and your respiration rate slows down at the same workload, you're just using more of the oxygen in the system versus excessively breathing because your prime, because your secondary muscles, which now are just strictly compensatory muscles. Mm-hmm. So our secondary breathing muscles are also our compensatory breathing muscles. And the only reason they become compensatory is because they integrate 
too soon, not secondarily, meaning when there's a high enough metabolic cost and I'm breathing well, so if I'm putting out 200 watts and I'm using my, you know, my diaphragm intercostals, right? And I don't need anything else other than that. Then I get up to 250 and that still maintains. Then all of a sudden when I hit 300, it starts to go. Hmm. You're going to start to see some secondary. That's absolutely normal because the metabolic load that's going up because my level of skill and my psyche is now like at a certain level of stress. My sympathetic system is now actively, overly actively engaging. It's secondary. It's not compensatory yet. Right. Compensatory would be if I get out the door and I'm running a, and I'm light loaded, right? Or I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm, these are compensatory breathing patterns. Let me ask you, when you were testing out all, uh, all these fighters, these fighters get their nose busted a lot. Any bias on the testing on that regard that they uh, have trouble breathing through their nose? Yeah, you have a septum just like mine, dude. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, that's what I show them every single time. <laughs> they bring up that same uh, fact I, not just all the fight, time? Not just fighters. Everybody. Everybody and anybody who's got a deviated septum is like, well, well I got a deviated septum. I can't do that. I'm like, oh, yeah? <laughs> Like I could drive a truck up one side and I couldn't, you know, I could barely get a pencil up the other side. Um, you know, my, my nose has been busted a couple times and I, I prefer to operate nasal only up until, uh, up until probably 10 points before my max heart rate. Wow. Took some time. And so for people that, for instance, they'll use their, uh, the little sleeping aid uh, they, for not snoring or whatnot. So people that snore, so people that use, the, the snoring uh, device on their noses uh, for them to yeah to so, the, so, so the little nasal strips that open things mm -hmm. up are great for sleep they could also be used during exercise if you've got dvd of septum with regards to snoring there's actually exercises that you should be doing with the tongue things that are like getting the tongue mm -hmm. out doing circles with the tongue outside of the mouth mm -hmm. dragging the tongue all the way back and then driving the back of the tongue up into the top of the throat. And just think of it as exercises like any other exercise, that if you spend a number of reps doing those things, work until the tongue gets tired. And what's happening is, is you're strengthening the tongue to sit up into the palate, the soft palate of the mouth, the roof of the mouth. Mm -hmm. That's where the tongue should sit, especially when we're asleep, even and when we're exercising, mm -hmm. right? Until we need, we absolutely need to mouth breathe, that tongue should be on the roof of the mouth, up oh, top. Yeah. And if it's not, that's a good indication that you, you're suffering from some breathing pattern disorders, um, some minor ones, including sleep. And you can, you can really change these things if you actually just engage in them. I uh, check would be very uh, adamant about that. Just, I mean, placing the tongue on the roof of your mouth and he would just explain it as uh, just pretend that you're, swallowing saliva and then automatically the, the tongue goes on the roof of your mouth and it protects the extensors so the back of our necks because this is of course where a lot of people are weakest most of us are just a sternocleidomastoids right here these two big guys on your neck they're so tight and i see this in a lot of my clientele and even when they're doing some sort of exercise i see their tongues moving all over the place and i just like hey just for a moment there, just pretend that you're going to be swallowing some water and they'll oh all of a sudden their their posture even it gets better just by them putting the tongue on the roof of their mouth it amazes me also that going to that posture a lot of the fighters you've tested I mean you see them rounded shoulders long a like their necks are forward head posture does that affect the, uh, their test I mean have you seen any anything have you tested posture wise if uh, any corrective exercises you've done that can um, that can test that? I don't necessarily get involved in a lot of the uh, intervention stuff other than using the breathing mechanics because mm -hmm. they begin to actually work themselves out, as we should say, when we ask them to engage in some of these exercises. Like a lot of, a lot of the athletes, including some, you know, like somebody like Tia Claire Toomey in CrossFit, right? Like mm -hmm. when I when I worked with her the first couple of years. It, when she was at the beginning of her reign, there would be periods 
where we would strictly be uh, like a gear one of work that was being done. And that alone begins to change things because when you're breathing like that, you have to find room by using those primary breathing muscles. And in order to do that, you've got to organize yourself much differently. So you begin to actually, like you're saying, if my tongue's going to the roof of my mouth, I'm starting to see changes. Now, yes, there are integrative postural exercises, getting people to open, to use their backs more front than their frontal chain, you know, so the posterior chain as opposed to the frontal chain, like that is really important to get a lot of these people, a lot of these athletes working with. But, you know, fighters are fighters, man. Like they're like this all the time. So unless they really learn how to restructure what they've done their entire careers, it's just not going to change. But that doesn't mean they can't make changes or have physiological changes as a result of these things. It's just not going to be as, uh, I should say, optimal as it could be. There's nothing really inherently wrong. It's just you know, and this is something I've kind of moved into in the last like probably decade is that, you know, there's poor movement and there's, there, there's optimal movement and it's never going to be perfect. But if I'm continually just reinforcing the same patterns and not working to improve my patterns, there's like, I don't know what the training's for then, you know, and I try and ingrain that perspective to people um, you know, we, we, we exist in a suffer culture and unfortunately exercise, fitness and health are all part of suffer culture as well. We all think it's just working hard and not, um, really working in a manner not to improve, but to understand that actively participating or chasing suffering is just because human beings are going to naturally suffer anyway, which you know, is a, is a broad statement, but is one that's real. Like, you know, I mean, just to kind of put that in perspective, it's like, I know that, that putting my hand on a hot stove means I'm going to burn it. That's actually suffering. I have a pattern of, of knowledge, of understanding of hurting myself if I put my hand in the fire, right? Like, Duh. Well, why is that suffering? Well, because there, I understand that that's a painful experience. Not suffering would be just putting my hand on the fire every single time and not learning about it. Right. But the idea is, is that I'm just going to go work hard. Then that is actually chasing suffering without hard work is simply a byproduct of going in and investing, investing yourself in learning about yourself and where you're at. And I don't know that there's anything better than performance and beneath that and would be breathing and understanding my breathing. Because as my breathing like stays in like, for instance, like when my breathing stays in a gear one, and if I go out the door and I'm much slower than I normally would be, right? Like, let's say I'm running 10 minute miles and at a gear one, heading out the door. I'm, and I get super bummed out because I'm not running the, 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 the seven minute miles that I was when I had my mouth open. Right. Well, let's just say in a couple of weeks, that's like, a, those are nine minute miles. You start to see that this change is happening as, as you're engaging this phenomenon, but what are you learning about that? Did you under, see the other aspects of this that were actually making life better for you? Like you're not as sensitive to carbon dioxide, so you're not overbreathing as much, so you're calmer throughout the day. Your sleep might be improving as well. I mean, these are just all things that kind of come back at me, but we exist in a suffer culture, even in even with inside endurance. Um, it, it's just the idea of going out and suffering. I'm just going to go out and suffer more. I, you know, it, it's like, yo, that that active chasing of suffering is quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, uh, I mean, it's something I've been talking about for 20 years, but just in, in, in different ways now. Man, you know, I, uh, I interviewed uh, Christopher McDougall, great guy, man. And he said something about competitiveness that just really struck a chord on me and how our society is so competitive and just has taken away the fun out of everything. Endurance wise, when it some triathletes, they, they call me up. Oh, Javi, I want to do some strength training. 
and I got, I'm preparing for this Ironman or whatnot. They come in and they were like, okay, let's, let's do the, the, the hard stuff. I want to suffer today. I want to like work hard when they don't even have the foundation to move. Right. So my point is that many people, not just endurance athletes, they just don't want to go through the process anymore. Like Christopher McDougal said, I mean, the insanity of us looking for shortcuts everywhere we want to, that we can thinking what we're getting away with just cheating on the human involvement. We're wrong. We're just going to pay the price that we could. He's, he mentioned shoes as the ultimate uh, cheating kind of devices. Like, Oh yeah, we're going to cheat the, the, the speed and we're going to, think that we're going at six minute miles, but, and think also that we're not really pounding the ground, but in reality, we are pounding the ground. We are suffering all those things. And all these things are just catching up to us. And you just mentioned a lot of points on the suffering part. It's, I feel that people still don't, don't have the foundation to take the time and learn where they're at. And you hit it right on the nose on that. They, they're blindsided by just performing performing for what dude no people aren't living they're actually they're so drowned in the idea of winning or accomplishing something as an achievement versus the play of it i mean i i i talk to fighters about this all the time like why are you so serious about this like i get you're going into a ring and you're going to fight but you do this every week multiple times like you get in you go on the mats, you go into a ring, you're sparring, you're competing, like you're doing this. Are you not having fun when you're there? And it's like, if you're not there to have fun, what, are, what, what, what's the point of it? And that's, that's the whole thing is it's lost. It's fun. some people that this isn't to take away. Like, you know, like you look at somebody like Dean Karnazes, like he's still having fun. Man. That guy's still having fun. And he's like a kid. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with him and we're friends and he is he is like a kid. He loves to run and he loves to take care of himself and he just enjoys it. And although hard work is a byproduct of that, it's for the sheer joy and love of it, yeah. which is why he's still doing it. His latest book is amazing. And, and he mentions that and, and he doesn't take himself too seriously. This is what I like about it. He's one of the, the true ones as well, man, just as you that doesn't, he'll see that, oh, I cannot do this amount of time anymore on the 100 mile the great the great western states western states yeah yeah which that's the one you did right or you did Leadville? yeah i've done western states yeah i mean it he still loves that to do that even though he knows he's not going to perform as well he still yeah. does it for the pure joy of it and i feel this is some something to ponder on i feel and um you know i've uh I wanted to share this book with you, man. I've been reading it. I, I actually study it. It's called, look at this. It's called Endurance. It's the author is Earl Lederman. This, you know, this book was written in 1926. And he writes a lot of stuff that just now it's kind of quote unquote being discovered again. So he, he's talking, this is the breath section, right? And he says it Readily can be seen that another essential point toward endurance is composure of mind. Worry will bring on fatigue quicker than anything else. But before that, he says, every violent physical sensation, wherever situated, will react upon the lungs, just as any powerful emotion will also make its influence felt. And you were, I saw you on an interview that you dove with sharks and how you kept your composure throughout the process. Also, you went through an accident and just kept your composure and a life-threatening accident. I'm basically something that's going to keep you in just in a wheelchair, man. You practice what you preach, but this is how the breathing takes effect. You practicing breath <clears throat> takes effect, knowing how to practice breath. So I wanted to see if you can uh, kind of show me right now, like something very basic, something that any endurance athlete listening to this right now says like, you know what? I'm going to actually practice maybe this type of breathing just before my training, or I'll just practice nose breathing until I have to open up my mouth, which is another question I wanted to ask you. When is it appropriate to us open the mouth if we're going so anaerobic or without oxygen? Most athletes, so most people I work with, 
there's an introductory period of four weeks of nasal only training, no matter what they're doing. And they can go as hard as they want, as long as they keep their mouth shut. And that is easily the biggest change that people will see with things. I think just calming yourself down before you train or appropriately warming up prior to things. So one of the big things that we, we get to is that, that place where you begin to train where it takes like 10, 15, 20 minutes for like you to settle in to the training. And that's really the pulmonary system catching up with the muscular system, right? And, and that can be avoided pretty quickly if we're actually warming up appropriately. And it doesn't take a whole lot. It just takes like warming up and then holding your breath as you're warming up on exhale holds and then breathing and catching up with your breathing. So actually spending some time in your warm up with doing some exhale holds to maximal ability. So that strong urge to breathe or urgent urge to breathe. And then, and then regulating yourself, calming back down and reintroducing that and then using nasal breathing for the next month. Then getting into kind of the gear system with how gears work, how we figured out how the gears work. And, and there's really, um, what we began with was five, but it's really just four gears. And gear one being an equal nasal in, nasal out. Gear two being power nasal in, power nasal out. So it's more like... Like a one second in, one second out kind of? Roughly. Then there is a gear three, which is where it's nose in, mouth out. That's strictly a transitional gear that's usually used in coming back down. So I go when I go from four, which is mouth in, mouth out, but I'm actively participating in that. I'm not just letting it happen. Got it. So I'm actively engaging that mouth breathing. So those are the four gears that we work with, but those only come after you've spent a month of really sticking within gear one and two. Most, most people are only in a gear two for most of the time, but then it gets an introduction to gear one, which gear one is essentially the, the easiest way to kind of restructure somebody's physiology from an aerobic standpoint. Yeah, I, I, and, and one of the easier ways to do this is to take a gear one, but apply it to one breath cycle every four seconds. Okay. So in for two, out for two, in for two, out for two, right? right? And you can work as hard as you want so long as you can maintain that. You spent some time with Laird Hamilton, and um, this was before your accident, I feel. No, it was before, yeah. right? Yep. And um, I remember doing some uh, listening to a podcast that Laird was on, and um, he was mentioning um, like 30 breaths, just basically diaphragmatic breaths, just exhale. <laughs> And then in for seven seconds or something, something like that. So there's, there were different methods. Um, what's there's, is there any difference in what you saw from him, what you learned from him and uh, what you kept on learning through, through your, uh, your own research? When Laird and I started training together and working together, there was not a whole lot of breath. Like we actually both were actively engaging in the breath work at the same time. So that, that was, and I actually, so I started XPT with them. I'm a co-founder in that and I would help organize that stuff. So what I think Laird's really, his big contribution in terms of the exercise is their pool training. That is a, the, what he has done with that and what he continues to do with it is very different from anything anybody is doing. He has it very well organized and very well thought out. And it's a development into developing a higher tolerance to CO2 while in shitty situations. And I think any sort of athlete should be engaging in some sort of water activity. Like this would benefit anybody is taking part in what it is they do with the pool training. In terms of methodologies with exercises towards breathing, there really are, so there's thousands of different breathing methods and techniques, but there's really only two things they do. One brings you up, one brings you down. So the faster I breathe, think of it as gas pedal. The faster I breathe, 
the faster I go. So if I breathe fast, my arousal state goes up. So does my dependence on carbohydrate, mm. which may shock some people, but your body doesn't care. It doesn't differentiate between whether the metabolic demand for oxygen has gone up or whether I've retarded my ability to use oxygen. So when I hyperventilate or I speed breathe, I'm not absorbing any more oxygen than I would if I were mm. doing that. Makes sense. There is no more oxygen that gets absorbed. What happens, I stop the dissociative curve for oxygen's use. So I become more alkaline. Hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen increases, which means it binds more oxygen and holds onto it. It doesn't let it go, okay? When I actually control my breathing or slow my breathing down, I'm building more CO2, which switches that curve to the right now. So now hemoglobin's affinity moves more towards carbon dioxide because the CO2 builds and oxygen is getting used and that curve, I become more acidic. So the pH switches, right? So the cold and heat also move this dissociative curve. So in the, in the cold, I don't, I don't have as access to much, as much oxygen when I get colder. When I get hotter, I get more oxygen, right? Yeah. So these dissociative curves play a role in everything we're doing. And so from a pH perspective or a metabolic perspective or a psychological perspective, my breathing changes instantaneously, unconsciously as a result of those changes in the system. Now, if I actively participate in changing that dynamic, meaning if I'm sitting here and I go, and we can all do this. One more. Oh. You should have felt a, a change Whoa. where you got lightheaded. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Uh huh. You did because your brain's because the intelligence of you is far beyond your mind and your brain just said basically in 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 a cartoon fashion your brain said to your body i am not going to allow you to change the ph of the brain because that would mean i'm not getting as much oxygen so i'm going to constrict the blood vessels to the brain which is going to make you lightheaded which is basically essentially preparing you for death. You're not going to die if you're doing this short term. But that constriction of blood vessels to the brain is trying to get you to go, whoa, I better slow down, right? <laughs> so we've, over, over the millennia, we've, we've learned yogis in the beginning with breath of fire. Mm -hmm. Wim Hof more recently. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. that if we induce this faster breathing or holotropic breathing or rebirthing breathing, if you do this enough, you can upregulate your sympathetic nervous system because you're retarding how you're using oxygen. So the, so the vasculature constricts and the body goes into, it, it starts to become more alkaline. If this continues too long, so from a chronic standpoint, people who overbreathe, and that's even triathletes, right? Like, so a triathlete that overbreathes when they run is a triathlete that overbreathes when they're sitting down, not doing anything. This is where it all gets shattered. Health is not what we think. So overbreathing in any place means I'm actually excessively offloading carbon dioxide. This could be too because of psychological stuff, mental stuff, like I deal with anxiety, depression, et cetera. Depression is more like uh, hypocapnic or, or hypercapnic, which is where we begin to, we, we have excessive CO2 in the blood, right? And, and we have a low, low, low respiration rate. Typically, we see that with the elderly population. But when we, when we overbreathe at any standpoint, it doesn't matter when and where, right? It's a, this is a retarding of how we're using oxygen.
So that dissociative curve changes. So if I want to use the gas pedal just to kind of get myself up, I would speed up my breathing for somewhere between 10 and 30 breaths. And that will instantly charge you up, right? And you'll feel lightheaded. Then you stop breathing and you don't need to breathe for a bit, which is also where, where and why you shouldn't do this in water. It's because you actually shorten the curve to using up oxygen and passing out. You can hold your breath for a long time or it seems that way. But what happens is, is when the oxygen starts to get used up because CO2 increases, it speeds up that curve and eats up a lot of the oxygen sooner. So if you're holding your breath, you've, you've retarded the curve to breathing, not oxygen's use, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where that changes. Anyway, that was a long, deep dive into hyperventilation techniques, fast breathing. Slow breathing goes the other way in which is probably more necessary for most, I would say 90% plus of the population in most instances in where we would engage in a breathing practice for three to five minutes, waking up in the morning or pre-workout, then engage in that because now I've got the system online and I'm like, my nervous system is in this state where it's ready to be engaged. It's downshifted, but I've got more, more oxygen readily available, right? Then I go warm up and let the metabolic activity meet that, do a few breath holds as I do that, then actually get involved in some nasal breathing, some gear one work, gear two work. And you can go as hard as you want. And then after that, the easiest thing you can do is to get back to a gear one, but do a controlled inhale and relaxed exhale. Just don't even touch it and let it fall out and get a little slower each breath and just sit there and lay down until you feel your system bottom out. Like you, meaning right. you just feel super calm. That is your recovery process beginning versus going, jumping on a phone and looking at this thing and going in. And by the way, and Huberman's talk about that. Yep. I go look at that like that. I have a sympathetic, my, my, my nervous system's being told, turn on. So yeah. if I'm an athlete and the first thing I do, if I'm a fighter or a triathlete or an endurance athlete, and the first thing I, first thing I do after I get off, get done training is get on my phone. You've just shorten, you've just elongated how much longer it's going to take you to recover. Okay. So now on the technology piece on unplugged, you just mentioned a lot of things, man, because, oh, yeah. and, uh, technology wise, that's the first thing we do. I asked even Christopher McDougall going back to him. If I asked him, do you have any technology? He just like, I stopped taking my heart rate. I, I know my heart rate for the longest time after a while is just, I'm not dependent on it, but this is we are with our earphones on running. We are with our phones. We're videotaping ourselves. We're just doing so much of technology. And then we go in our phones and see how the workout was based on the data that our, our gadgets give us. That brings up a really interesting point is that most people believe their heart rate has something to do with their caloric burn. True. And it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's just a correlate that, that people used when on a gas exchange machine, like you have a metabolic mm -hmm. cart that we use, oh, what was the heart rate when this sort of gas, when this marker of gas exchange changed? Yeah. When we went from 0. 0.7 to 0. 0.8 to 0. 0.9 to 1.0 RER, what were the heart rate met? What were the heart rates at those points? Right. And so that's where that kind of fell into this paradigm of zone training, mm -hmm. which couldn't be more false. Yeah, man, it's just, I mean, a lot of people are just burning out. They're, they're just fatiguing. Just, I've seen people, I've tested people that are just sitting down and they're already just doing, uh, they're burning carbohydrates. They're not even burning fat. This is how deep their metabolic system is. And uh, what would you suggest? I mean, have you worked with kids in any way? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something, I mean, my, my little girl, she's seven and uh, at one and a half or something, this dog licked her, a poodle licked her. She started crying, getting nervous. I mean, ever since then, she has been afraid of dogs. Like she developed an allergic reaction to dogs. It's getting better. And uh, she, all of a sudden she says that, I mean, every time she pets a dog, she's like, hey, daddy, look, look, I'm petting, I'm petting. And, but from a distance, right? But that fear is still there. And 
I feel that I, if I would be able to teach her something kind of to calm her down whenever she's around animals and that everything's fine is because I tell her all the time, she's like, animals can sense your fear. If they'll, if they, if they fear you, they'll snap at you. And um, so now we have a straight cat here. Like just keep, she kind of pets it. We guess the name of the cat, man. I mean, the, my kids are metalheads, man. They, they don't listen to any of this new age kind of crap. They love Judas Priest and all that. So they named this straight cat Turbo Lover. And so they have, uh, they, we have this cat, but she still has a phrase. So in, anyway, my question to you would be, how would you work with kids that obviously their heart rates are still not quite, they're still adapting. They're still kind of getting evolving through the whole thing. What would, how, what would you go about in a situation like this? You got to make it a game. True that. Got to be a fun game. I mean, my first inclination about your daughter is to get her a puppy. Yeah, a lot of people tell me that. <laughs> I've been attacked by two dogs pretty badly. One wasn't so bad. I mean, it, it, it stitches, but one was pretty bad. Like took took part of my face down, took my like my arm down to my muscle wow. tissue, and that had some stuff. Like I had like although that's a traumatic experience that carried trauma, meaning mm -hmm. I brought that experience forward into some, into other dogs after that. But even though I have a dog, I have a pit bull, but she's the most loving, like she's still around. Oh yeah. Let me see her. Oh, there she is, man. She's, she's amazing. Yeah. She's four. She's 14. You know, you have to actually want to confront it. And with kids, it's difficult because will create something that didn't happen out of what happened. Right? right. And that, you know, and in some instances, there is a real traumatic experience where they did get attacked by a dog and then that carries in the rest of their life. But that is still a process that needs to be worked through. Trauma is simply the avoidance or the protection from pain, mm -hmm. right? Or the painful experience. And so from a nervous system standpoint, it's learning to regulate your nervous system prior to engaging in something, but you've got to titrate it in a way that's not over, like it's too much, meaning it's not too much at first. So it's making a game out of the breathing stuff. Um, like we just finished a study with uh, a pilot study with the Aspen's uh, high school with kids. And I mean, it showed efficacy with getting these kids to regulate their breathing, that it changed their anxiety and mental states, right? Weird. We knew that this was stuff that was going to happen. It's just moving the needle towards stuff we actually really want to do, but you got to make it fun because that's the part, that's the part of this that isn't really fun. And I think it's like, get a heart rate monitor for her, right? Like, does she play video games? Right. Okay. So have her play a video game and put the heart rate monitor on, show her what her heart rate's at, right? And then give her a breathing exercise after she's done. How quickly can you get your heart rate down? So that's something that we do is it's like, it's showing people, like I'll, I'll do this when I do talks, right? Like I'll, I'll have the entire crowd like stress themselves out with some like breath hold stuff right. and feel their pulse and just experience the feelings that are happening as we do that and correlating that to physical and emotional stuff, then we'll go through it again. And then I'll give them a breathing exercise to follow and feel their pulse. And their pulse just goes funk and it falls to the ground. And they're like, whoa. I'm like, so what's the difference between what you felt now and what you felt before? And it's night and day. And that's with anybody. And this is kind of going back to the point of recovery with finishing a workout. Well, what's the first thing you want to do, man? Like, woman like <laughs> like you want to you want to absorb what you just did so the fact yeah. the easiest thing i know to do that is to is to get a hold of your breathing to bring yourself down to use that so that the so that your biology can do what it you don't need to do anything for like we're in this constant state of like i'm i need to improve just so we're clear there's nothing you can improve there isn't no no amount of biking running lifting weights will improve you you're just expressing your biology and what it's actually capable of doing. But if you're listening to your biology, you're not going to have to actually go, I need, hey, Javi, I want to do that hard stuff today that I'm not actually really capable of doing right now. Like, no, I want to do the hard stuff that's the fundamental stuff 
that I'm going to challenge myself in these positions to get better breathing mechanics and then learn how to bring that down so that I can begin to climb up and really express what I'm capable of so that at 50, what if I was better than what I was at 35? Which like, you could be. You have all the potential. Which you're, There are many things I'm better at right now at 47 than I was at 35. Now, I was definitely, I could lift a little bit more and go a little bit faster, but I'm on my way back to that right now. I mean, I've dealt with a few things, but I've never, it never became, it's like the integration of this stuff really got to a point of really painting a reality in the moment. Like I almost broke my neck. Like we thought I did break my neck. So I had a game of, well, how can you get really good at doing this? Like, what are the first things you can do? And it's like getting a whole, oh, I can walk now. Like, okay, so what can you do to actually help this? I'd sit on a stationary bike in a, in a um, waterproof neck brace up vertical and I'd ride and I'd sit in the gear one. And, and literally within like a year of just playing this game of what can I do and what can I express, I got fitter on a bike than I'd ever been in my life. And I've done centuries and ridden my bike. I've done Ironman. Like I've done, you know, like I've done these things. Right. But I was putting out more wattage and more work doing by going that process and just starting from the ground floor in, in having neck surgery and being paralyzed at one point in a year time frame, And yet we're, we're like, it just, it, it puts things into perspective. Where am I at right now? What can I do to express myself or my biology in the most effective way for what it is that brings me joy? If that's endurance and triathlon, fuck, then really make it that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, we're just almost the same age. I'm 46 and uh, definitely takes longer to warm up, dude, by the way. I mean, it's uh, my workouts are just like, but you mentioned something that you're more, you've been more intentional on the things that you're doing since the, the accidents. You've been more mindful and more present doing things from a standpoint of you as Brian McKenzie getting better as opposed to just getting better for the sake of it. And did any, anything happen to you? Like no depression or anything? Did you ever struggle with anything up during that point? Oh yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I had a pretty severe concussion off of that accident, which none of my doctors, including the, my surgeon, nobody addressed the concussion. And I didn't realize I had a concussion <laughs> until I was like depressed. <laughs> wow. And I was like, why am I depressed right now? Like I have never been depressed in my entire life. And uh, so I had to deal with that. I had an insomnia, I had an insomnia issue for about a year, not like I'm on the back, I'm on the, just the tail end of that stuff because of a, an experience with COVID and a bike crash that happened that set off a bunch of things that I wasn't paying attention to enough, closely enough. I kept training and I wasn't getting sleep and I didn't realize I was compounding everything by continuing to train the way I was. You know, something that a lot of people don't realize they're doing. So I had to reel it back. I've had, I've had to, it's not even reeling it back. It, it's really like, what can you do right now? What are you listening to? And when I listen and when I listen to what my, my, my body is communicating to me, I'm in tune. You know, I do as much as I can for fun that I possibly can. So I'm surfing as many days or I'm in the water as many days as I can be this winter. I, I, I skied and snowboarded 50 days. You know, like I was on the mountain almost every day during the season in the morning. So I, I'm doing things that I, I really enjoy. And I wasn't doing it because I had to. I was doing it because I loved doing it. I, go, I love going in the water. If I go out in the water and I start to get serious about surfing waves, I stop hmm. and I get out. Or I just laugh at myself and I reconfigure and go, what are you getting serious about? Like, because you didn't catch that wave? Like, so, you know, anyway, the point of this is that it's always going to go up and down. And what am I paying attention to? You know, I think one of the greatest impacts in my life was changing how I drove my car. 
when I work with people, we set up experiments and this is kind of like moves kind of, sort of into the kid category some in somewhat, but you got to make it fun for kids where adults, it's like pulling fucking teeth. But I challenged my driving and I was like, all right, for one week, you're going to drive under the speed limit. <laughs> Go ahead. I to make it a day with, you know, with that to where I then came back to it and I got two days in and I was like, my life's changed. Like, I get it. Like, I don't need to drive over the speed limit. I knew in two days that I was like, I was literally destroying how I was using energy every day because of my psyche and my need to get somewhere that I wasn't. I was literally trying to be somewhere I was not. And when you slow down enough in traffic, you start to see how, how traffic moves. And it's everywhere. It's not just Southern California. It's not just Miami. Everybody is moving too fast and driving too fast because they want to get somewhere because they're driving somewhere, but they're not present to where they're at. So they're missing everything that's going on in front of them. And that is literally a metaphor for life in general. Like, why can't I just be present with this podcast versus what I'm doing next? Like, yep. right? Like, or why can't I just enjoy the bike ride for the bike ride versus like, fuck, I got this deal I got to deal with later. Then go deal with the deal and get off your bike or stop thinking about the deal and, and enjoy the bike. Enjoy that you get to be on your bike right now. And what are you learning about yourself as you go through this? What's going on with your breathing? It's quite remarkable if, if I would just apply everything that you just said, being present in this podcast right now. And I just notice my breathing patterns. There's a sense of energy and power to it. It empowers me in well, many it's, ways. It's the only real power you have. Yeah, I, I, I ran a program at San Quentin State Prison for six months prior to COVID hitting. And this is exactly what we went over with these guys. There's only one prison. Hmm. And that's the one here. And the moment you can't be what's in front of you, you are in that prison. Even in talking about your daughter and her experience with the dog and what she's done, she created an experience that didn't happen. And she's creating an experience. Now, even if that experience did happen, let's say the dog better and she's with a dog, she's suffering because she's projecting a story that has yet to happen in the moment. She's trying to predict what's going on. And so I'll bring this full circle. Your breathing is predictive. Your breathing works off of chemoreceptors in the aortic and the carotid arteries. So the chemoreceptors, that means that the fresh blood that comes off the heart that's been newly oxygenated and the blood that's going to the brain, it has not yet done anything really to where it's been the oxygen, the metabolic activity of the brain, nor the periphery has happened and that blood is not coming back, right? It's a predictive system of where the CO2 where it's at, where your oxygen levels and CO2 levels are at. And that prediction is tied up into the psyche, which is why Paul Check probably has the psyche at the foundation, where I, I would still have breathing at the foundation. It's just breathing affects the psyche because we're on a predictive system in a predictive loop. The amygdala, although it's a fear sensor, is also a CO2 modulator. Hmm. So depending on how sensitive I am to that CO2, That'll show in the amygdala, my fear, my interoceptive fear goes mm -hmm. off depending upon how, how hypersensitive I am to that. And this is all a biological thing, all for necessity, but we're no longer in the wild and there is no bear in front of us. And we're creating a bear that's not there with just about everything we do by trying to be somewhere we're not. <laughs> So that predictive system is working right off of that. Hey, listen, Brian, I cannot thank you. I've taken so much of your time, dude. I'm so sorry. I appreciate your time, man. And I hope that you're not, don't get too famous, man, to, to come, to come <laughs> back to the podcast. <laughs> and uh, man, you know what? I, um, if you notice the logo, and this is props to what you came up at the beginning and how we met. Uh, if you notice the logo of Endurance Cartel, it's very similar to the one of uh, you came up for uh, CrossFit Endurance because that logo of that shoelace tied up to that like uh, to the bike uh, chain 
that was like, damn, this is so badass, man. I mean, this is all we need. <laughs> so yeah, my logo is very similar. So this is how much of an influence you've been, man, in a very good way and cannot thank you enough. And man, any anything that we, uh, any announcements that you have for Shift or anything besides, you got one announcement for Shift Rest, but. Yeah, so, you know, if you guys, if, if people want to get started with just some easy breathing stuff, go to shiftadapt.com forward slash breathwork, or they can click, go to shiftadapt.com and click on what we do. And it's three steps to starting a breath practice. They can take that exhale assessment and find breathing protocols that'll work for them based on their CO2 sensitivity. That exhale test is designed as a real-time biological, not technological way of assessing a breathing rhythm that works for you. And, and that'll cor- there, there's correlates in there. They can map this whole thing out with that. And then in about a week or two, Numa P-N-E-U-M-A dot plus will release. And that is our software, which actually creates a full-blown uh, fingerprint for breath, breath work to integrate into your day to build a bigger resiliency window. It also incorporates some working stuff for breathing into it, um, which should Fascinating. be a, a game changer for a lot of people. We also are doing that, as I, as I mentioned, that Art of Breath course, which is all about performance. And then Emily Hightower, who we work with, will be doing her skill of stress uh, course the next day in, in Los Angeles. And these are both very, very complimentary and in-depth, but the fundamental entry point into understanding everything we talk about today. That's fascinating, man. And you still are at, at I am an unscared on your Instagram? No, at underscore Brian McKenzie. That's right. That's right. Brian, later, brother. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you. And we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.